Hey everyone, welcome to Mouse in the Merrimack. I'm Captain Chris Velasquez, here with my cousin and good body. Dan to you, Daddy. All right, Dan, welcome aboard. How are you doing today? Doing great, man. How are you doing, Cap? Uh, doing great. I'm really good because I'm really excited. I have my good friend, my co-captain of Mandolin Charters, uh, Michael Fallon. How are you doing today, Mike? Great. How are you doing, Chris? Uh, I'm doing awesome, man. Welcome been, to the show, Mike. Thanks, Dan. Been looking forward to this for a long time. So, Mike, the big news for you this year is you're stepping up. You're getting a new boat, all right? I'm going to get a boat that I hopefully won't sink. So, yeah, looking forward to that. So far, you're, what, two for four on sunken boats? Yeah, well, you know, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> He's just kidding. He never sank a boat. No. Jeez, what are we talking about here? <laughs> so, Mike, what did you have, and what did you get? So, I had a uh, 2012 uh, Parker 21 SE and moved up to a 25 SE. And uh, a nice open floor layout. A little bit more horsepower and um, just a lot more space, which will be really nice. So, Mike, you do a lot of you're, you're doing a lot of inshore bass fishing, but you're also doing uh, a bunch of offshore tuna fishing, even up here. Is there a reason why you didn't go deep fee and you kept with the SE? Um, the predominance of my fishing is inshore, and I felt that drifting the both drift the SE is, is flatter. It's a modified V versus the deep V, and it drifts a lot flatter. So, for, for the mouth and for 80% of the fishing that I do, I thought it would be better for everybody and my clients to to uh, have the, fl the more stable platform. So look at that. What a nice guy. He makes his own teeth chatter for just for his clients. <laughs> <laughs> well, the reality of it is when you're up here fishing the area we are, we kind of have a different fishery than a lot of places, you know, on the Northeast Coast. We're You're either offshore for tuna or you're inshore for stripers and things. And with how much drifting the mouth and slow trolling and anchoring up that we do around here, you really need that stable platform, A, to be comfortable when you're drifting in four-foot waves in the mouth of the river. Um, and there's very few boats that have those those dead rises that are that are lower. Um, for those of you that are listening, if you don't know, um, the amount of V, the sharpness of the hull where it enters the water is called dead rise. And a lower dread rise, like a 10 degree to 15 degree is considered um, modified V-hull. And those will give you more stability, better fuel economy. But you lose some of that head-on drive. You know, if you're going on continually making long runs, um, you want something that's going to eat up that chop a little bit more. And those are deep V-boats. And typically a true deep V is anything over about, what, 21 degrees, would you say? Something that like sounds that. about right. Yeah. I think cool. the biggest thing is that a deep V will part the waves and a mod V will slap off the top of them. Correct. Or bounce off the top. So you're going to definitely have a, a better or, or a softer ride, a more cushioned ride with a deep V. But sometimes you can have a pretty good ride with the, the mod V as well. And honestly, unless you're in much chop, I've never had any issues with my SE. I've been out there in probably plenty of days that I probably shouldn't have been out there. You deserve a 25-foot boat. Yeah, and um, <laughs> I feel that uh, I was never really restricted by... The, the, the modified V, except on, you know, longer, those longer runs and you're running 25, 30 miles and you're going offshore to the outer parts of Jeffries or down south. And by the end of those runs, you're, you're kind of feeling it a little bit with the, uh, with the mod V, if there's anything more than like a two foot chop or anything, but I think the longer boat is going to be a little bit better for that. Yeah. Like you were saying though, with like the drift fishing and having a big group on the boat, you know, it's much better to be on a floating dock than it is to be you know, seesawing back and forth. Absolutely. I think, too, the Parker 25 is kind of a unique boat because it's got a 9.5-foot beam. Yeah, it's very wide. So it's super wide. I've been on Pete Murray's. You know, he's got a 25-mod mm -hmm. V Parker. He's had it for quite a few years now. 
And um, I had a 23 modified V uh, Parker. And I can tell you, even though my boat rode fine for 90% of what I was doing, uh, going on Pete's boat, that extra length and that extra weight really seems to make that boat uh, just drive a little bit more comfortably than the 23 did. Yeah. Um, Pete helped kind of really sell the boat for me. He said, you know, I, we all know how many, we know how many boats Pete has had. He's had plenty of boats over the years. He has plenty of boats now. Kurt, right, exactly. <laughs> a small armada. And um, he said it was by far the best, his favorite boat he's ever owned. So that helped encourage me to pull the trigger. Well, and, uh, so I'm, I'm behind Mike on the dock and, uh, I just got used to docking my boat last year, so I hope that I don't put any yellow side swipes. So now that we have an extra foot and a half of beam in front of me. <laughs> I don't think nobody has to worry about you. I think we got to worry about Tom pulling in. <laughs> <laughs> Tom is Mike's dad. <laughs> Actually, only, only a foot wider. It'll be all right. <laughs> we got to get the dads on here one day. Those oh, two. That'll be all right. That would be a fun time. <laughs> but back to your boat, man. Um, and just. You know, in addition to the bigger modified V, which a lot of companies don't do anymore, uh, most production boats are at least, you know, 18 degree to 24 degree. You know, you're looking at contenders and CVs with your 24 degree super sharp V narrow speed boats. But the Parker and the Pair Custom that me and Dan have are also a modified V hull. Um, what they bring to the fishing world for how we fish, it's it's ideal. It's ideal. It is, and it's a little harder to find. I think that's because of the, you know, general on a highway, anything over eight foot six, you're supposed to have like a wide boat permit for most states. Um, so I think most boat companies build their boats to eight foot, eight foot six, even when they're 25, 26, even 27 feet long. And it's rare to find a fishing-minded boat, something that's not, you know, something that's built for fishing rather than pleasure, an open open concept boat. Yeah, really it does seem like a lot of boats, they put in all the bells and whistles and all the accessories right. to drive up the price and cater to the weekend warrior, right? Yeah, to find the dimensions of a boat, of a good fishing platform like that, or it's kind of hard to find right now. So that's uh, and, one of the reasons I went for it. Yeah, where did you, where did you find the boat? Um, down the Cape, actually. That what that what year is it, the new one? It is a 2010 hull with a 2019 engine. What's the engine on it? It's a 300 Suzuki. Oh, you're going to like the Suzuki. I like mine a lot. I've had mine for, God, I got three seasons. I got 1,800 hours on it right now. That's great. You'll and be able to show me how to change the oil on it. Oh, it's super easy. Everything about it is really nice. It's quiet. It's got a lot of punch, you know. My Yamaha had about 3,800 on it when I sold it, so I just oh, wow. just hopefully uh, keeps kick ticking. And That's awesome. I have no doubt that it will, you know. Yeah, I'm yeah it's nice having the bigger engine because, uh, you know, I have the Suzuki, the 200, and it, to, like, to change the oil filter, you really got to pull the boat out of the water. You can't just use the plunger because of the, it's, yeah, you have to get it up two pieces of plastic to make it happen. To change the what? The oil filter. On your Suzuki? Yeah. Like we do an oil change? Yep. Really? Yep. Yeah. It's, it's an, it's awkward to, to get it out unless you, unless you actually take off that bottom piece of plastic. Okay. Huh. Maybe I'm thinking of something else. Then your engine's bigger than mine. The little screw in filter? Yeah. Yeah. You have to take off it. It's down below. Yeah, it's down below. Like if I actually try to pull it out, it will just make a gigantic mess, and I'll be barely be able to wiggle it out. It's just a. It's Is a, it in the cowling? No, it's below. It's below. So it. they always make a mess. Oh. Yeah. yeah, the trick I found is pack it with towels the best you can and hope for the best. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what I do is when I do my oil change, I obviously drain everything first, and then I just put a rag underneath and yeah, there's always a little bit screws up. Stuff in there. I'll tell you, you know what? I always got all these wrenches and stuff, like strap wrenches and things like that, and they break or they don't fit right. Like, I got one at Napa. It's a little piece you put on a um, a wrench, mm -hmm. and 
it just snaps on, goes perfectly right over it, almost like a like a nut. And Those just are the best ones. Comes right out. Yeah. And it stores really easy. It's a good little good little tip there. Um, yeah, but you know, you get the 360 degree fishability. You get the flat deck. You get the three piece construction, which is another thing that's been gone. Like you don't see it anymore. Yeah, we have a lot of rod holders going in there. Um, yeah, it's awesome for rod. Yeah, putting the rod holders in, and then you have the tow room alone. You know, it's not a, you're not not in a bathtub. The other thing I'm really excited about is having the bracket. Um, with the 21, you know, have kind of that Euro transom there, or basically a cutout, not really Euro transom, but um, it, uh, every once in a while you get a little, you know, in the mouth especially, you get a little, little wave that comes the wrong way and you get a little bit of water that comes through. Nothing dangerous ever, but, you know. You must um, notice a difference in the turning, though. Well, it's nice not to get your feet wet when you're, you know, yeah. when, you're, when you're sitting in there. Well, yeah. it was nice about when I had my parker, when that happened, if we ever had any waves come through the back of the uh, cutout. It drained out really fast. It always does. It drains yeah. out super fast. Yeah, it's never it's never a safety issue or anything, but it's yeah. just nice to if you're wearing sandals or something, not you know, not get your feet wet. Chris, remember the time we were out in your parker? We had the bucket of eels, saving them for later in the night. Yeah. And then we were drifting out, and as soon as we got past the North Jetty, a wave curled right into the boat and then knocked over the bucket. And I we just watched all of the eels just immediately shoot right out of the scupper. <laughs> I think I remember that. Yeah, not one of our proudest moments, but you know, <laughs> it was a whoopsie moment. Whoops. <laughs> Nothing good about eels flopping around the deck and you're trying to wrangle them, especially at night. Huh? They didn't even flop. It was like a vacuum. They just got sucked right well, out. Yeah, that's right. Because <laughs> they had the cutout scuppers, right? Uh, the Parker just had holes in the back. Yeah. And it just went whoop, right out. Whereas that wouldn't happen now in my boat because I have like a little um. Yeah, the flat. It's the like strainer. a fl- yeah, the flap. flapper. Yeah, yeah. The flaps on mine too. So, but. Yeah, man, it's a rock-solid boat. You must be super excited. You're staying Very with excited. the Parker family. You've got this huge platform. It's going to be comfortable doing everything that you do. You're going to be able to take six people on your trips now, which yeah. is great. So our little company we got going here, we can finally take six. You know, I max out at five. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. That's going to be a lot of fun. And it's really similar to mine and Dan's boat. So I have a 24-foot pair custom. Dan has a 21-foot pair custom. Again, modified v-hull when i was looking for a new boat to be honest with you when i had my 23 foot parker i thought that was going to be my boat forever i really thought i'd just be repowering it it's a great boat i love my 21 honestly if it was not it was if it was not for you know running more trips and um just wanting to kind of get out there in a little bit more variable weather um i would have stayed with the 21 it's an awesome boat it's everything you really need in the merrimack unless you're trying to take out four plus people on a you know fairly regular basis and can't necessarily just pick cherry pick your days if you're a regular dude that's going up there 30 times a year with your buddy or two 21 is the way to go around here yeah that's it that's a part of the reason why i also love the 21 is as long as you have the right fishing setup and the right platform you know and the workability is there i'm not bringing six guys on the boat to go fishing it's typically me and two others and the thing absolutely just sips gasoline oh that's yeah, you're going to find that out. You'll probably burn a few more gallons of gas this year. But yeah, not bad. On the numbers I looked at, it's looking like maybe time and a half the gas I burnt last year, which is yeah, not, not max, which is not which is not bad at all. Um, I mean, we've done a lot with that boat. We've killed a lot of big fish, big sharks. It's done. It definitely punches above its weight, so I'm going to miss it. And yeah, you must be happy you got a Mako last year, considering that's done for. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. That's true. That was fun bringing on a little boat. And uh, we got a few tuna on it as well. And um, uh, hopefully whoever buys it is going to be uh, catch a lot more big fish on it. So. Yeah, the boat's definitely got the juju. Yeah. That was, oh, so the, that was a good little trip, too, because I had a client on my boat who was up here spending the weekend on vacation. 
And he wanted to know if I had the next day available. And I'm like, no, I, I don't. He goes, oh, I really want to go shark fishing. I'm like, yeah, I really want to go shark fishing right now, too. And luckily, Mike was available the next day. He took him out. We didn't and go out until like 10 a.m. either. Yeah, yeah. why did you tell us? Tell us like the give us the play-by-play on that one because that was a quick, quick afternoon trip. No kidding. Yeah, so I'm not even sure where we left late, but I, I had plans. It was a last-minute trip, and I was like, all right, we can do it. But we're gonna have to leave a little bit later. So it might have been nine. Was it the nine. weather? Was there a weather issue? No, it was. No. It, was it was just like short notice. I had plans or something, yeah. and um, I think I was coming. I might have been coming back from the Cape actually. Yeah. Probably what it was. And uh, so I think we left at nine or ten. Uh, we got out there, found a sweet temp break. We probably ran. 20 miles. So you did find a temp break. Yes. Yes. We found like probably one of the better temp breaks that I've found while shark fishing right. on Jeffries. I mean, you find a lot of good temp breaks down south. I do a lot of fishing off, or off the Cape. Um, it's a lot. There's just a lot more water moving around down there. Every single Mako I've encountered has been on a, te- on a temp yep. break. Every single one. So it's funny because the, um, the same day, John Parkhurst was out there. Mm-hmm. Also caught a Mako. Uh, he was on the other side of the temp break. I think I was... I have it in my notes, but I believe I was actually on the hot side of the break, and he was on the cold side of the break. Really? Or vice versa. Do you remember uh, the temp? Not offhand. I have it down in my uh, yeah. in my logbook. But I remember one of them. There was like a five degree break in the middle of Jeffries. This was like a four, yeah, a was, solid four degree break. It was one of the best breaks I've ever seen on Jeffries. Yeah, because you don't we don't get breaks too often. Up not there. over, not short. Not over you know, a short period. Maybe over a couple miles, but yeah. not over a quarter, half mile, or something like that. It was a real sharp one, and there was a ton of weeds it was kind of pain in the butt so i we literally just motored until we got out of the weeds because i wanted to fish as close to the break as possible but i also mm-hmm. wasn't going to fish in salad the entire day and uh, so as soon as we got out of the weeds we started pow- well, we started power chumming kind of when we were in the weeds and across the break and then waited till we um found some clear water and set up and uh we caught i think three blue dogs in probably we probably got our first shark 45 minutes in half hour in I think we got the Mako. We got the Mako only, I think we only had lines in the water for like an hour and a half, maybe hour 45. It was not long at all. And, um, you know, I told the guys that, hey, if we take this fish, we're going to we're gonna head back in. We had some ice, but we didn't have the, uh, we didn't the big tuna bag or anything that we could stay out there for another four hours in 80-degree weather with a shark. Because let's be honest, no one is really prepared to bring home a Mako every time they go shark fishing, unless yeah. you've got a big boat to right. carry that stuff. Well, generally, you get one, you, you head in, you ice it down, you cover it yeah. with burlap and everything else, and, you know, plenty of ice to keep it to keep it, keep it it good. But um, So that was the plan. They, they, that, the guys were thrilled with that, and it was just a father and son, actually. From, uh, I believe they were from Vermont. I think they were from Vermont, yeah. yeah. I believe he was actually a realtor, Dan. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, he was no, actually. No I think we talked. We saw you, and we talked about you for a while. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, that's and, right. Uh, yeah, the, uh, his son. His son was in high school. Uh, one of the uh, burliest high school. He might have even been like in middle school. This kid was like twelve or fourteen, and he could probably bench press me. I remember this kid, dude. He was in eighth grade. He was huge. Massive. Like he looked like a legitimate college left tackle. He'll be in the NFL, like. Probably next year. Yeah. yeah. It's <laughs> all that Vermont cheese. Yep. The corn and the cheese. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, no, he did awesome. It, it was great. We, uh, we got to the boat and uh, it was close. So um, I made the not so intelligent decision to double lip gaff it and drag it into the boat. Um, given the, the regulations, you know, there was a certain size limit for male and female Mako last year. Uh, we determined it was a male on the water. And I believe the size limit was around 70, was either 73 or 71, whatever. 70, I think it was 73. 73, I think. And I think females were 83. 84. Or something like that. Yeah. yeah. So whatever it was, it was, we, we rough measured it kind of in the water as best you can measure a, 
six and a half foot pissed off. Yeah, something that two, wants to bite your hand yeah, off. Yeah, two and a half mango shark deal. in the water. I, I thought he was probably about two, three inches over um, the male size limit, but didn't want to kill him beforehand. So we double lift aft him, brought him in the boat, tackled him, and um, gave him the uh, gave him the old stone cold stunner. And uh, once he settled down a little bit, we uh, got a tape on him, and sure enough, he was two inches over the the legal limit there. And, and then at that point, we, we bled him out. And he gave us the whole show. The thing about we killed him, put a bucket over its head. And I saw the video on my phone, actually, about an hour later, just straight up came back to life and almost jumped out of the boat. He was flipping so far on, on the bow of the Parker. Was and he tied up? Did you tie him up? I, I tied I tied his tail to the bucket on the head. Mm-hmm. And two ropes. one of them came off. Yeah, and it was just it was just crazy. There's blood flying everywhere. It was it was wild. I thought it was great until I had to clean the boat, but oh, I had him uh, I had him right between the cooler and the um, in that casting platform in the front of the boat. So I kind of had a good little nook. For yeah, he probably got stuck there. right? Yeah, yeah. it was kind of jammed in there, and then I was able to uh, keep keep the two sports towards the back of the boat, so they didn't get you know. How long did the customer fight the fish for? It wasn't that long. Um, it was probably 20 minutes or so. Okay. Did it come out of the water at all? Or oh, yeah. So it, it never came out of the water fully, but it, um, so what happened was it was really a classic Mako encounter. So we you know, set up on the temp rake. Everything looks good. We had some blue sharks around the boat, caught a couple, and all of a sudden we had another blue shark around the boat. We were, we were, we had we were petting them. We were coming by the boat, we were petting them, and we were just kind of having fun. And uh, all of a sudden the blue shark just bolted. And I was like, oh. I know it's going to happen now. And all of a sudden, <laughs> this, this Mako swims in. And there's just no mistaking a Mako. I've seen them maybe a half dozen times over the years between fishing in the canyons off the Cape and up here. And the biggest thing that I always see when I see a Mako is the color is a little bit kind of deeper blue, but it's the, the militaristic nature they swim. When you see a Mako, they're not messing around. They're just, they're here to, they're all about business. You you don't realize it until you see it. Yep. See so and destroy. When you have a blue shark you know, in your slick, and like, say you throw a bait down on the hook and it's sinking below them. The blue sharks, you know, they swim like big lazy S's. They'll kind of use their fins and they'll circle and they'll plane their way down like a corkscrew most of the time to get that bait. And it almost looks like half the time they're not even interested and they just happen to stumble upon it. But then you get a mako and it almost looks like a shark tuna hybrid because it's so... Robotic it, almost. It's robotic. That's the word I'm looking for. Thank you. It's just going really quick. And the way, like, when I've hooked Mako's next to the boat, we throw the bait in the water, it starts going down. And the way they just lock on and tilt their bodies, their bodies legitimately like like a lever just tilts and then they just shoot right down to it. And when they bite, they get the head shakes. You know, they always, I feel like every Mako I've ever hooked has hit me like two or three times. Yeah, so that happens as well. They just, they're so erratic. They'll be going one way quickly. All of a sudden, they'll change direction on a dime. They're just, they're very, they're very acrobatic. And did yours jump? Did that one jump? Never came clear out of the water. Yeah. It threw water at the top a couple times, but yeah. it never, never did a full breach, unfortunately, or possibly fortunately. But yeah, we hooked it probably, I think the leader was still in the guide probably 20 feet from the boat or something like that. And we hooked it two or three times before we finally got the hook in the right spot. Mm. And um, I'm not sure because it was so close or what the deal was. It's hard to pitch the circle hooks too. Was yeah. it a pitch bait or a blind bait? Pitch bait. Yeah. yeah pitch bait. Did you actually pitch it or were you just free, float, free floating it back? Pitched it to him. Yeah. Nice. So I pitched it, hooked him, did it right out immediately, hooked him again, had him on for like probably two minutes at that point. Came out. I was like, okay, we're all done. 
and then I kind of I soft slash behind about like kind of just as far back as you could see, and then I kind of just feathered one back there to him. Um, and just when it was out of sight, he grabbed it again. And when they hit that bait, it's just so much faster than a blue shark. It just, you know, it, yeah. it, it's like a like a thresher or a tuna. If you ever had experienced that, it's a it's a different speed than a blue shark takes a bait. And uh, you kind of know you got something on there when they're changing directions fast like that. Blue sharks can go, they can go fast, they can run hard, but they're not erratic and they don't uh, they don't switch it up too much. Yeah, they're they're pretty predictable yeah. of where they're going, like up. where their head is. Yeah. That's kind of where they're going. They might spin around. They're not shifting. They're not like translating their bodies real quick. And I want to just bring back to what you talked about with the hookup because I don't think you and I have actually talked about you catching this fish. Like, I know that you caught it, but we never went into detail about it. And the fact that it was your third hit and you took it and you dropped it down to where you couldn't just barely out of sight, I have rehooked two Makos that way where we they came up, they bit the back half of the bait, and then, like, Dan, you were with me in my first one. Yep. We had a balloon go down. Boom. Go right down. Boom. I had a live whiting on. I'm reeling it up after, like, five minutes. And as I'm reeling it up, we were actually early in the year. I had a day off, and we were just scouting for a shark trip I had coming out in a week. And uh, this Mako happened so fast right next to the boat, came right up. And I I never seen one at that point, like in real life like that. I thought it was a poor beagle. And um, we'll get into the rest of that story another time. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just a point that, like, don't quit. You know? Yeah. Don't quit. You never know. He could still be around. This is an apex predator. He was probably pissed off. He didn't get the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, for the first time you see those things, makos. They're just they're angry. They're looking to they're looking to eat, and they're all about business. So if you've got one around the boat, I mean, you never know what they're gonna do. But you gotta keep trying to put baits in front of them. Um, I've caught a couple of their ones. I've caught. I've been out in the canyons too, and actually, two of those I can remember, um, both spit the bait and had a rehook again. Actually. Um, so yeah, they'll, they'll come right back when they get really fired up and charged up. It's almost like, um, I'm not sure a hunting analogy, but, um, it's, they'll come back. They get really excited. So definitely, you know, stay on them and, uh, either eventually they'll fade off or they'll come back and eat it. Well, I'm glad our conversation kind of went this way because we weren't really sure what we we're going to talk about. Yeah. No, this is, this is awesome. Let's dive into the world of shark fishing. Oh, there we go. So we know the deal. It's kind of, it's easy fishing once you're there. Like, once yep. you're there, and once you have your thing set up, it's pretty good. It's all preparation. It's all preparation. So, like, talk to us, Mike, a little bit about, you know, how you set up your slick, how you, what things you're looking for before you go, you know, just yeah, some of the basics. So out here, so I, I, I shark fish down south of the vineyard and up here um, out of the Merrimack lot, and uh, two different types of fishing. So, you know, down south, you're fishing general broad areas. You're going to go out to a... An area, we do, you might talk about an area as a waypoint, like say the claw, but it's a, you know, it's going to be a kind of a 10 square mile area versus talking about, um, you know, a specific point of Jeffrey's Ledge where they're, you know, a very specific little hump where you want to be right on the X. And um, so up here, what I like to do is I'll, I'll go out, I'll run, I'll pick an area. If I can, I'll get a look at a satellite temperature shot so I could, if I can, I'll start by trying to find a temp break that somehow correlates to a piece of structure that I think sharks will be around. Um, so say basically any big hump on Jeffries could be the prong, curl, you know, what have you. And if I find some good water in one of those areas, I'll go out and get within probably three, four miles of where I want to start my drift. And I will just shut the boat off and I'll let it come to a full stop. 
you know, let the momentum go. And I want to see, I'll zoom in on my fish finder and I want to see exactly what my, my drift trajectory is going to be. So Mike, when you say you look at your fish finder to look at your uh, trajectory of where you're going to go, what specifically are you looking at? Do you have any settings or anything you put on your fish finder to see that? So yeah, not the fish finder setting, obviously. So I'll look at my GPS. GPS. Yeah. yeah. I'll look at the map, but uh, basically I'm, I'm looking to see, all right, am I going to am I going to drift south, north, east, southwest, south, southwest? I'm going to try to tune it as best I can. And this is going to change over the course of the day because the tide's going to change, the wind's going to change. So you'll usually end up in some type of, you're doing some type of crescent shape, um, depending on what ends up happening. But I'll try to narrow it down to exactly, you know, what I'm going to do. So then I'll, I'll figure out my, what my, my heading's going to be for my drift. And then I will move the boat to get about a mile or two away from a couple of different structure points that I want to hit. So I'll try to line up as many ups and downs as I think I can hit during the course of that drift. Um, usually, you know, your ideal shark drift is probably a half to three quarters of a knot, something like that. Um, so I'll figure, you know, I'm going to drift maybe three miles over the course of the day. could be four, could be whatever. I find usually my best shark trips, I'm between like five and six and a half. Point five or? No, uh, miles. Miles. Yeah, miles there, there full drift. It yeah. depends how you do it too. So I did on some shorter trips too where I'll fish three yeah. or four hours. But if you're going to fish eight or nine, ten hours, you're going to cover a heck of a lot more crowd. Do you know our shark tournament that we fished together on my boat a few years ago? Yep. Our, our first day there, our drift was 14 miles long. Oh, my We Lord. did one drift that whole Was day. it really? It was 14 miles. Wow. We didn't get off that drift. So if the wind and tide are going together, yeah, you'll go a little you're gonna, you're definitely going to cover a lot more ground. So I'll figure out. So, I'll, so pick, I'll pick your three or four miles that like I think are, that are good drift. And I'll try to line that up, giving my course heading with as many ups and downs as I can. So that I'm dragging that slick up and over as many ridges as possible. And then I'll line the boat up, and I'll line the boat up a couple miles away from that, and I'll power chum towards it. And once I have, say, a half mile slick, so what's it, uh, what's power chumming? Power chumming is when you're going about as slow as your boat will go, usually three or four knots. You're dragging a bucket bucket of chum behind your boat to basically jump start your chum slick, so that when you start, you're not starting dead in the water with zero slick. You're um, you're hopefully have a half mile or a mile slick behind you before you even start. And um, what I like to do is, so if it's a real, if it's a rough day out, we're going to be moving a little faster. I'll power chum less. And if it's a flat calm day, I'll, I'll power chum for a while. Um, flat calm, no movement is really the kiss of death with shark fishing. Because unless you drop right on their heads, you're just not going to cover enough ground to find. Yeah, nothing's worse than a drift when you're just dinking around in the same area. If, yeah. if a shark fisherman shows me his chart plotter with his track on for the day, and I see that his track is a circle... You know, where he's not really drifting, just the wind and the tide changes, just keep you in that circle. I'd be like, dude, you had a pretty shitty day, didn't you? Almost like 100% of the yeah. time. And I say almost because I did have a trip this year. And when I got out there, it was so calm, no wind, no ripples on the water. And I'm just like, oh, this is going to be a tough day. And I think we just stopped on him. Cause I think I was with you on that one, too. I had two guys on that trip. Oh, okay. It, it was last year. I don't think you were on that one. But you were on another one that was like that, and we did pretty well, too. Yeah. Um, normally, in these situations, the past few years, a huge advantage in, the, in that situation um, has been my trolling motor. I'll put my trolling motor down, and I can actually... And I've been doing it a little bit now, too, even while I'm just free drifting, because I can put my trolling motor at a, like a really slow setting, but I can create a course. So even though I'm drifting in that straight line, like say if I want to hit an edge, 
I can actually make myself slowly zigzag over that edge so I'm not in like deep water all day or shallow water all day. That is very nice. And I think when I got the trolling motor, that's something I never even thought about. I mean, I went charter one day, I fished out in the mud, same thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was staring at this lobster pot for like a half an hour. We didn't move. I put the trolling motor down three minutes into it. We started bailing sharks. Yeah, I find that a lot of the, um, excuse me, with Jeffrey's, once you get onto that deep water, sometimes you're just you're in that deep water for the day, mm-hmm. and so you don't necessarily. And you can catch blue sharks out there. Don't get me wrong, but the majority of the exotic species that I catch the, um, the poor beagles, the makos. I've actually never caught a thresher um, north of the Cape before, only down there. But um, the makos and the thresh, uh, the uh, poor beagles, have all been on structure. Mm-hmm. So I try to stay, you know, on structure. I'll go as far, depending on you know what my crew wants that day. Is sometimes we'll reset in the middle of the day if we have to. And, uh, you know, the general thinking, the conventional wisdom is the longer you're on a slick, the better, mm-hmm. uh, the better chance the sharks are going to find it. But there also comes a, comes a time when you have to say, tide and the current aren't really pushing me where I need to go. It's time to, you know, time to start over and, uh, and try to hit something new. And that's yeah. always a huge decision. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I call that running out of real estate. Yeah, <laughs> yeah pretty much. Yeah. You know, you find yourself in the deep water. Well, what the hell am I doing here? And, <laughs> and it's so weird because if you talk to a lot of experienced shark fishermen, they say, you know, stick with your slick, stick with your slick, stick with your slick. I really buy into that. But I have left because sometimes you just know. And that's the experience thing. Back when Mike and I were working together at Captain's Fishing Parties, I mean, Christ, we probably went shark fishing 25 times a season whenever we could, like in the fall when we were out or if we had a day off between the two of us. Maybe not 25 together, but, you know, a lot. I mean, I definitely would go out at least 15 times myself shark fishing. And um, I want to go back. I wanted to mention earlier when you're talking about setting up your drip and looking at your heading. um, I don't know. Well, you get a new fish find uh, GPS on your boat, right? Actually, the same one. one I had on the old boat. Oh, the same exact one? Same exact unit, but a Sorry. radar now and a T-top. <laughs> so I'll take the radar, and uh, at least I know how to use this unit. Uh, but one of the great things that I do to help me with that, with I, I'm not looking at my heading for my compass because that's not where my boat's pointing is not necessarily where I'm going. So on my chart, on my fish finder, I always have uh, a course over ground. Uh, vector setting so it's a straight line showing where my boat is actually going and then I have a heading vector which tells me where my boat is pointing so this accomplishes two things I can have my course over ground my heading match up when I'm driving somewhere to make sure I'm going where I want to go but I can anticipate my drift when I stop my boat like you said I do the same thing I stop about four miles out just take about 10 minutes I'll whack up some clams or squid for bottom fishing I'll just wait get rods set up then I go back and I'll look at my track, my breadcrumbs, and then see where that's going, and then see where my course over ground vector is going. And then I can just see on my chart exactly at that point, you know, where I'm going to hit. And I want that line to hit the most productive areas for the longest amount of time. Mm-hmm. So even though we're fishing, say we're fishing one particular hump, you know, that we like, you could start that drift five different ways all depending on your conditions. You can start east and drift west. You can start north and drift south. And that's part of the game, you know, taking that time, that 10 minutes to really see what the conditions are giving you and how you're going to get pushed. It, it's your whole day. It is. And especially if you have only one or two pieces of structure you're going to hit, you don't want to hit it with a quarter mile chump slick. No. You want to hit it with a two, three mile chump slick. Uh, the longer, the better. And uh, that's going to just going to 
it's going to help your odds. Um, the other thing, just to jump around, but you know, when you're taking that few minutes to figure out where you're going, it's a great time to get your chum into your chum bucket. You know, you, whether you're going to take a drill and drill holes in an existing chum bucket and hang it over the side, if you're going to switch it into a different bucket that already has holes. Put what do you do? Um, so I've done both ways. What I do now is I have a six gallon bucket yeah, with holes drilled in it. And I will, I like the uh, square, the f- four and a half gallon square chums. And uh, if I flip it upside down and manage to not screw it up, it will generally slide right into that six gallon bucket. And um, I like it because it allows, the six gallon allows a little bit of water to flow around the chum immediately. So it really starts going pretty quickly. If you drill holes in a four and a half gallon square bucket and hang it over the side, it takes quite a bit of time for it because it's so, these things are generally so frozen if you get them from a you know, reputable bait shop. They're going to be in a deep freeze. They're not going to be, um, you know, they're not going to be at ten, you know, frozen at 10 degrees or 5 degrees or something. These things are pretty cold. And uh, they'll stay frozen for a while and they're not going to let out a lot, which when you're power chumming, you want that chum in the water because you're not going at half knot. You're doing four or five knots. And uh, you want to lay down that slick. And you can do other things to augment your slick too. You can... You can throw a couple chunks here and there. Um, you can add a bit of Hayden oil. Do you do oil still? I don't. The uh, The chunk that we've been getting recently has oil in it. And I think the oil is great. It helps a lot. It's just, it's a real pain in the butt. It's also it incredibly gross. slippery if you get it on the boat. So it's actually a little bit of a danger factor there. Um, <laughs> it tastes if you, terrible. If you ha- <laughs> it tastes phenomenal. <laughs> and um, now I just put it on my steaks. So, yeah. <laughs> No, um, it's, uh, I haven't been done the dripper bottle in a while, but I, I like it on rough days because the comms just yeah. slick. You can see your slick, you can see your balloons, you know, mm-hmm. hopefully the balloons are sitting inside the slick. It does, know? it does show up really well on the surface yeah. and that uh, gives you a good visual cue. You can see fins coming through and things like that. Yep. Yeah. With some of the downtime on the boat, I, I would like to make the, uh, the dripper bottle have the perfect drip. <laughs> oh, the yeah. right pinhole in there, a little hole in the top to get some airflow going and the right count as, as it just drips <laughs> into the water because it doesn't take much. No, it doesn't. The one I used to have had like a little IV slide on yep. it, a little wheel, and uh, you could kind of dial it. You could also use Menhaden milk, which yep. is probably one of the more disgusting substances available on planet <laughs> Earth. It's so gross. It's it's like on par with the stuff in the gutters in New Orleans. So what <laughs> what is what is Menhaden milk? What you it's know. like it's like concentrated oil. So yeah. like you can take like a little bit, you can take like a little bit and mix it in a bottle, I believe. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just kind of treat them all the same, to be honest with yeah, you. Yeah, I didn't say. I just get know. whatever I can get at the time because it used to be a lot harder to find that kind of stuff. When well, we used to shark fish, no, I didn't know anybody that shark fish. Like when I met you and you said you were into it and I was into it, I'm like, this is pretty sick. Let's go. So yeah. it's a couple of things I would like to talk about with the shark fishing, though, the technique, what you shared is like that's such valuable information, uh, but at the same time too. You know, you gotta have the right gear when you're out there, right? So light, heavy. How do you, how do you like to go about it? All over the yeah. place with yeah. this, man. What I started, I started with like a Penn Spinfish or 9500 and a couple of TLD 25s. Um, actually, one of the first Makos we ever landed was on a TLD 25. It took like four and a half hours. Those stock too, right? No, no upgraded handle. Yeah, no drag. power handles. Four, a, forty pound big game. The TLDs, it's amazing because you get total mixed reviews of that reel. People are either break them in the first trip or they they have them forever. Oh so no way, like, dude! I have my TLD 25s. I've killed more sharks or caught more sharks than anything I've owned. They're, they're awesome. You just gotta treat them. You can't put 130 pound holocore on them and set the drag to 40 pounds. They're, no, you know they're. A, but you don't need that. They're a they're a reel you got to set to like 14, 16 pounds of drag, you know, 50, 60 pound mono and have a ball. And they hold a quite a bit of line. I mean, if you spool them up with 40, 50 pound mono, 
um, especially something that over tests like big game or maybe momo is probably you know, a lot more than big game but um you can have a lot of fun with them and uh I, the one upgrade i would suggest is getting the oversized handles get the, the handle the stock handles you'll you'll hate yourself about 15 uh, minutes into uh, a fight with anything that 40 dollar handle turns that reel into like a 300 dollar reel just with that it's so you're gonna get the up upgraded drag washers too for like 20 bucks because they're the tlds come stock with felt and if you get the carbon drag washers, it's a lot smoother. Oh. And then some guys even like trim out the the washers on the spool to get better free spool. They put upgraded bearings in. Um, Tiburon, I actually have one. I have a TLD 30 that's an open frame metal frame. I got it aftermarket. I had the reel for a few years and uh, I did all the upgrades to get more drag, but then I had the graphite frame. And this company Tiburon, who now, um, is part of Okuma, so they kind of partnered with Okuma back about 10 years ago, and um, they used to make all kinds of aftermarket parts, so that was a cool little thing. Uh. And um, But like my TLD-50s, I mean, I've had those for 15 years, man. We've gotten giant tunas on them, we've gotten th threshers, They're awesome. Makos. I, I wouldn't hesitate to, you know, anybody who's trying to fish reasonable fish, if they have TLD-25s, you know, I think if you're buying new reels from scratch right now, and you can probably get something that's a little bit better like graph there's nothing wrong with graphite reels just, yeah i would go something i'd probably different. get something at a 30 size or even a 50 depending if you're going to fish braid or mono or if you're going to um, use hollow or how you're going to you know how you're going to spool it up if you're going to use straight mono you're probably better off just going with a 50 but, um just to not worry about it but um they're awesome reels so i started with those and um and from there i ended up you know moving into the internationals 30 wides and whatnot and now i kind of a mix of 30s 50s and 50 wides but um, I like to keep it on the lighter side. I mean, up here, we have some of the biggest Makos and Threshers that get caught. So you have 98% of the sharks you're going to run into are blue sharks. And even a 300-pound blue shark, you can catch on a TLD-25. No problem. You know, yeah, that one that we had caught in the, at the end of the trip when we were out there, that thing must have been at least 300 pounds, right? That blue shark. Remember uh, that massive one? I would think so. Probably. We've, we've had quite a few. Yeah, there's been some big ones. I mean, they, they tire out. I mean, the big thing, too, is the sharks is you don't want to play them to death either. So yeah. um, you want to be fair to them, and use you got to use enough drag to be able to get them in. And if you have 14 pounds of drag on any blue shark, you're going to you're gonna get them to the boat before they're going to croak. I would. I, would I, I set my strike at 15, but I don't fish it there, with, with clients at least. Yep. With clients, I drop it back probably at about 7 or 8 just so they get used to being in a harness. If I'm fishing them out of a harness with a bent butt, um, and even that's fine. Half the time, unless it's straight up and down, we just push it to strike and, yeah, and move and just it up. be able to, you know, if things yeah. go in and go, and then you, you're able to kick it up. And the nice thing about drifting with sharks, too, is you don't have an anchor down, so it's exactly. easy to go chase the shark if you need to. And uh, you don't really want to do that. It messes up your slick a little bit, unless you leave your bucket in the water and a buoy, but you have the ability. I mean, I was all set. I used the same thing with you. I started off with TLD-25s, got TLD-50s. I'm now got Makara 50s, Okuma Makara 50s that I really like. Um, and But the thing, that Thresher Shark and some of the Makos, and now that, you know, in the fall I'm going down and fishing for tuna a little bit more down at the Cape, you know, I, I've invested in 50 wides. But, I mean, last year, last two years, our number one rod that we've been using has been my Haddock rod. We've been pitch baiting blue sharks with a Torium 16 and, like, an Okuma Azores yeah, jigging that is rod. A, that's an awesome setup. And it's a riot. It's it, so much fun. It's a blast. I mean, I think the biggest thing with shark fish, you need like a decent drag, which honestly any modern reel right now has plenty of drag for the majority of sharks out there. It's not really a big thing. 
Um, the biggest thing is the leader setup. You're going to want to have a leader setup, and when you, the right leader setup. When you, when you come to that, you're basically talking about a wind-on or a non-wind-on situation. You know, back in the day, guys used to run 15-foot cable. cable and single-strand you know, wire, which is a real pain in the butt. To, it's real dangerous and a pain in the butt to wire. It's, it's dangerous and a pain in the butt on a big boat, never mind on a center console where you right. don't have that kind of room. It requires an extra person to just, just do that, and they really need to know what they're doing. Um, it's the most dangerous job yeah, in, well, the, in the fishing world, the, the leader man. What we really like doing is fishing those, you know, usually they usually come in 20 or 25-foot lengths. So, uh, we usually use hard mono wind-ons. I think I've settled on around 300. Um, yeah, I get some 300s for my light stuff and 400 for my blind baits, my 50 blind baits. And that really just comes on what capacity you have on your reel because if you're having it spooled up for tuna and everything else, you don't want to, you're not trying to fish with half a spool of line that, that can account for 25 feet of 400 pound, you know, hard mono. But um, so 300, 400 pound, you know, mono is really good. Unless a shark has that directly in their teeth for a bit of time, they're not going to bite through it. So we run that to like two, three feet of wire, single strand. Usually it's. I think it's about 180 pounds. I think yeah, I use 186 to 208. It depends yeah. on the brand. I don't want to go heavier than that. It's a pain in the ass to cut. I'll do 220 sometimes. That's as yeah. high as I go, though. Yeah, I won't go any higher than that. No need. And you do a, do a haywire twist um, onto the hook. It's pretty easy to do yourself. Um, we could probably do a video on that, actually, at some point. Yeah, that would be an awesome video to do. Well, something that you got to get a, get a little bit of a hang of, you know, to make it happen the way yeah. you want it to. Well, if you're going to make a haywire twist, there's only one tool that you have to get. And if, if you're a serious shocker or somebody who's tying wire all the time, it's the best $50, $60 you'll spend. It's a little skirt. It's called Scourge of the Sea Haywire Twist Tool. And it's it makes making a haywire twist an absolute breeze because otherwise you're doing it with your hands, man. If you make two or three, four of them up, your hands start cramping. So over the years, I've actually never used a haywire twist tool. I'm the, uh, I'm the odd man out. But I have cut myself with wire many times. Yeah, and, um, and not, I mean they work, but your twists are kind of kind of sloppy. I think if you get a little blood on the wire, it just <laughs> it just fishes better. And my, <laughs> my twists are impeccable. <laughs> what are you using for hooks? Um, I know we've been using the uh, I guess our standard issue is that sixteen knot circle. Uh, I think they're long line hooks from um, was it all tackle? Catch all. Catch, you get all. A catch all tackle. Catch all tackle. Black yeah. sixteen knots. Yeah, they're pretty good. I think they're. Longer bucket piece or something. They're pretty reasonable for a shark hook. You're going to go through a lot of hook shark fishing, especially with circles. They're real hard to get out. Um, that's the other thing, too. Let's talk about what to do when you catch one. Yeah, well, back to the hooks, though. Okay. It is important that you have somewhat of a decent hook because, you know, you wouldn't want to straighten one out or anything. <laughs> Again, that's another that's another <laughs> podcast for another time. Um, but one of the things that well, we're talking about hooks, I want to bring it up. Um, there are regulations. If you are shark fishing, you have to, by law, use a non-offset circle hook, and it cannot be stainless steel. So the hooks that we're using, uh, they're non-offset, 16 knots, they're black carbon. And you can see if you leave one out in your deck, it like rust away like by the end of the end of the week. You know, it. it they uh, they rest out and fall out pretty easy, and that's a law. So make sure if you go into the bait shop, if you're ordering online, you have to get non-offset, non-stainless steel circle hooks. Yeah, and in terms of sizing, I mean, we use 16 knots. I think you could probably start using something around 12 aught. Yeah. Um, it's anywhere. I mean, heck, you could probably in a pinch use a 10 aught. Yeah, I've used I've used plenty of tuna hooks, like 8 aught tuna hooks, especially yeah. if I'm fishing small baits. You know. Right. Um, are you a live bait or a dead bait guy? 
Um, I've done both. I'm mostly a dead bait guy now. I do. I, if if I have the chance, I will have a live bait out. A lot of times that will be my middle bait. Yeah, me too. Um, or that's my deep funny. bait, and I think that sometimes will just get you a little bit of a uh, little bit more attraction. I just have something to flap it around in the water, but I find they usually take the nice boneless fillet given the opportunity. And I cut my pieces small too. I mean, you see some guys that will do like a 12 to 14 inch strip of bluefish. I almost make like a four by four chunk. Yeah. Well, or not even. It'd be like tethered and look kind of fishy. But I want them. I don't want them pulling on the tail and not getting the hook. I kind of go. I kind of learned that from all the makos that short strike bigger baits and live baits I had out there. You know, give them one little piece and just let them loop. You know they're there. They're all they're all horned up from the chum. They're there for a reason. They're ready to eat. Yeah. It is pretty amazing though how different days, different different baits will do different things. Though, <sighs> you know, it's like what are they going to eat today? I, I and when I fish live baits, I've had so many live baits where I end up catching a fish on a fillet, and then I check my other lines, and I've got half a livey. Yeah. It's happened a couple dozen times. It happened so, to us a couple times when we were haddock fishing, trying to get a poor beagle. Poor beagles love they to love shop. It. I, blue sharks, I think, will eat anything. They'll come back and finish it off, but uh, makos probably will too. But poor beagles love to just get a little bite for the road and, and take off. So, um, yeah, I'm a big fan of the dead bait. And, uh, you know, in terms of hooks, you got, like you said, you kind of covered that. Um, you know, in terms of leaders uh, or the bottom part of your leader, your, your single strand, um, you're going to be able to cut through that or cut through the hook to let the fish go. So you're going to want to have regular wire cutters on if you can't get to the hook. And if possible, if you have a big set of bolt cutters, I think the best thing to do for the shark um, is to just cut the hook in half. And that way it's going to fall out of there and rust out of there a lot quicker and they're not going to have a big old circle hanging out yeah, of their mouth. Slip. But, I mean, that's it's it's fine to cut the wire as well. I just, when possible, like to do the bolt cutters and snap the hook. Two little tricks about having a wire cutter in your boat. First of all, have two. Because you never know if you're going to drop one over. You will drop one over. Knock on wood, I don't think I have, but I feel like I've done it a bunch of times. <laughs> Second thing, when you and this is important, when you go to Home Depot or wherever to get a wire cutter, look for one that doesn't have that little hole where, oh, where, yeah, where when it you closes get all up. the way down into it. And oh. then, yeah, that's... Yep. Because a lot of times you go to cut the leader, the line's tight, and you, you go to put your, your snippers in. And you go to pinch them, and there's a little hole. You know what I've been using? Actually, tin snips. I use tin snips. That works. Yeah, tin snips are great. They've been great. Keep them oiled. Oh, yeah. If you have that set of bolt cutters at the bottom of your center console, don't ask me how I know. And uh, you go to pull it out, and you can't even pry the handles yeah, apart. Yeah, trying to rip them open. Yeah, they're not as, they're not much good. So you got to you know take care of this stuff. Make sure you have a couple options, and uh, you know when a pinch a regular set of wire cutter pliers will cut that single stand pretty quickly. So, so Mike, last time I was shark fishing with you, uh, I was I'm, I'm used to getting balloons on the baits and getting them out there. You had these uh, like pool noodle setups. For floats. Oh yeah. You still so, doing that? Yeah. What's kinda, that all about? I kind of stole that from the from the uh, swordfish guys. And um, so what you do is you basically you um, well you can use rubber bands too, but what I like to do is wh- I, when, I, when I'm setting up shark rods, I'll have the rods kind of set up and I'll whip um, basically whip loops at various depths on the rod. So I'll have my 25 foot rod, my 50 or 60 foot rod, my 150 foot rod, or whatever, however I'm doing it. So when you say you whip loops. What are you talking about? Yeah, so tying, I'm tying loops um, in, onto the mono with floss that will allow a long line clip to hang on to. Okay. The long line clip is how I attach the pool noodle float to the line. Um, it's a long line clip so that you can easily unclip it and then reel the loop into the rod. 
Um, it's important that that happens cleanly so you don't have a big you know, big stall there. Um, the pool noodle is literally, uh, I usually do think I do about probably 20 inches of pool noodle. I like to do a bright color so you can see it. Um, nice thing with the pool noodle is when you have, so you're going to have your pool noodle, you're going to have your line down your leader, you have some weight, and then your bait. With weight on the bottom of the pool noodle, it sticks straight up in the air. So it's nice because, A, you can see exactly where your bait is, even when it's rough, and it's pointing straight up in the air. If that pool noodle lays over on its side, you know you've got a bite. Because uh, a lot of times the sharks, just like swordfish do, they'll bite it and they'll swim up. Especially those ones on the deep down lines. Yeah. A lot of times you look up, and you just see a balloon coming at your boat, and you're like, oh no, oh no, I hope he doesn't get the other one. Because they're, they're hitting down low, and they're swimming up, and not really putting a lot of pressure to take the balloon down. So what Mike's saying is you get this vertical presentation of your pool noodle, and if that fish hits and puts slack on the line, the pool noodle falls over flat, and then you're like, oh, I got a bite. So you get it on the upswing with the pool noodle, which is really cool. Yeah, that you, you don't get on the balloon. You basically just get the information faster. Yeah. So instead of waiting for the balloon to go, say, all the way under or start flying at you, you're going to know more quickly when, that, when something touches your line what's going on. Um, and you don't have the risk of getting all the, that rubber in the ocean for the sea turtles, you know, you <laughs> the balloons. <laughs> Helping right. the environment as well. Uh, your baits are out there. Okay, you got baits on your balloons or your pool noodles or whatever. Fishing circle hooks. Are you locking up your drag? You letting them run? What are you doing? Yeah, so it depends. And I've got back and forth with it over the years. Um, at this point, I so what I like to do is, so it's kind of the opposite of tuna fishing, where in terms of depth, so I'll put my, uh, my far bait out deepest um, when I'm shark fishing. And, and then I'll kind of stagger it close to the boat where my closest line is usually a flat line with no weight. Maybe it has just a bobber on it or something if it's, or maybe a couple ounces if it's really rough. And I'm usually hanging that just out of sight. And that kind of doubles as a pitch bait rod as well. Um, so if I see a shark come in, I'll take a couple cranks on that and I'll kind of pitch it to where I want it to be. Um, so from there, I'll, I'll, have a, I'll have a close one. I'll have one out at maybe 50 or 60. Um, probably one at maybe one at 150 or something like that, depending on the depth of whatever we're fishing. And uh, and I also adjust mine on my drift speed, you know, because the faster you're going, your chum's gonna actually rise a little bit higher in the water column, right? Because the way your boat's drifting. Mm -hmm. So believe it or not, when we have a fast drift, sometimes I fish my baits a little bit higher. Uh, I guess I'll say it since I'm in there. Another thing that's always been super successful to me. On a slow drift day, you know, where we're not going fast, you know, you'll see sharks in your slick and they won't come up to the boat and it's really frustrating. So I take my deep bait out and I put either a small chunk or a live mackerel or something just under the balloon, like 10 feet, and I'll send it way back, like 100 yards. Like I'll dump the mono all the way back. And that thing is what saves the day. It really is. I don't know why they get spooky. They, they, they don't want to eat. They don't want to come to the boat, but they're there. So we take the bait out to them. Yeah, calm days. I think if you can stick one, especially shallow one, way the heck back, it's, it's gonna be, it can be the money that gets that one bite or gets that you know one of a couple bites when it's real tight. Um, I've been locking my drags up in terms of the answer to that question, um, especially on the deep ones, because by the time your, your line is going out 100 yards and then it's going down a couple hundred feet, um, that shark better have that bait in its mouth by the time it comes tight. The odds of that just not happening are... Yeah, he's going to be down there with a bunch of slack either which yeah. way. He's going to spin around or go up, go exactly. down before you even know what's happening. So, 
I, I keep that tight. The middle one I usually keep tight too. Um, my short line I'll keep loose. Um, I'll keep that. I'll keep that one loose so that it, you don't want to make sure you have enough tension on it where you're not going to get a backlash when he whacks it in case a mako comes up and just you know really hammers the thing when he's going away. But um, I'll leave that one. Uh, I'll leave that one so we can take some line before I set it. I'm the exact same way. My two down lines are, are locked up, and then the one next to the boat. Um, it's not in free spool with a clicker, but it's also not just above. It's probably still got like a pound or two of drag on there. I would say at least. Yeah. yeah. I'd probably even do like three or yeah, four. Yeah, you know, at want, least. I wanted enough where I'm not worried about it. I, I wanted to hit and run and not break my rod, yep. being so close with a tight angle on the boat. Yeah, depending on the angle is a good point too. Yeah. But like I said, I think this year I'm going to kind of revamp and bring some smaller rods out and start going freestyle with no harness and make it a little more fun. But the problem is the blind baits for me, the blind baits for me are going to at least be a 30 wide, you know, at least a 30 because a 400 pound pressure on, you know, a Torium 16 is not going to work. No, I mean, you, I think you can kill any shark up here with a metal framed 30 wide Absolutely. And, and braid backing. Um, especially if you chase it in a center console. I mean, you, it might take you a while, but you can do it. Or it pulls you. Right, exactly. But uh, I think that's that's a that's a big thing. I think on the on the pitch baits, you can use whatever you want. Use a fly rod. You can do. You know, we've done that a few times. That's kind of a blast. Um, do, but on blind baits, you got to use a use a real one. Did we get one on a popper with you, me, and my dad in that foggy day one time? I don't think we actually. They hit it, but we never came tight. I think we were throwing poppers. Yeah, at them. yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think we ever came tight, though. No. Actually, I think we were fishing pretty expensive lures, so we didn't want to come tight, if I recall. That was after the Tomos trip, yeah. Yeah. A couple strategic anglers, if I remember correctly. If you guys ever want to lose your money, go to Tomos. That's for sure. (laughs) Um, Yeah, man. I'm just excited, guys. Think about it. What's the date today? February 9th? I believe so. Yeah, we're going to be, I mean, in a couple months, we're going to be haddock fishing. With a poor beagle line out. That's right. Hopefully the next podcast we have, we'll talk about our poor beagle story we just got. Absolutely. It's just a little bit more exciting each year when you got a new boat to look forward to. You get to learn. You've been getting really excited, getting all the, all the gear, gear together. I'm sure you guys have been, you know, respooling your reels and doing all the small things over the winter that makes time go by. Still working on building those real rods that I, uh, yep. that I want for the year. Well, I just, yeah. uh, I just picked up my macro rods from you the other night that got shipped to your house. Yep. So. I, just, I just wrapped three, three new black hole haddock rods, um, last week. Oh, very a, nice. Epoxy them. Which, which blank did you go with? I went, so I have one. I'm building three clones, so I'll have a set of four now. It's the, uh, Challenger Medium. Oh, yeah. The nice. 731. And uh, it's a good heavy fluke rod, great great haddock rod. I loved it last year. How, how, how much weight do you feel comfortable fishing haddock with on that? Um, so I had a blast fishing 8 to 12, but it can definitely handle 16. Definitely? Yeah. Yeah, nice. yeah, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't, it, you could drag 20 on it, but it's gonna not going to be a lively rod at that point. But, um, yeah, guys will use them out in Nantucket Shoals with 20-plus ounces. No so, kidding. Yeah. How long is it, 7? Seven? 7-foot seven 3. Uh, did you cut it down? Did you keep it that long? No, I keep it that long. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I use the, uh, I'm a big fan of the wind grips. People say I'm not sure how durable they are. I haven't had any problems with it. I'm pretty rough on my stuff, too. And uh, they've been holding up pretty well. And these things are also going to work great for, uh, for bass fishing as well. They're a little heavier, a little faster action than I prefer for a live bait bat, or just a bait bass rod in general. But um, I think they're going to be great for that as well good pogey rod good trolling pogey type rod yeah i think great great chunking rod with yeah. a rod holder or something like that where he wants a backbone and uh you know they're strong I've, I've had great luck with the black hole blanks and i've built 
probably a dozen of them anyway. Oh, yeah, they're an amazing, amazing blank. They Damn. really are. You got a few black holes too, right? Uh, yes, yeah. I've, I built the, the Challenger Heavy and also the uh, the slow pitch, the slow pitch jigging rods that they make, mm. the Cape Cod, Cape, I think it's the Cape Cod Special. Yep. Unbelievable rod. Yeah, it I really the, is. I think the 150 and the 250 Cape Cod Specials for tuna. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for jigging and uh, on the canyons. And then I've done the challenge. I think I've done all the challengers, all the seven foot challengers. I did the ultralight last year, which made a phenomenal squid and sea bass rod. Yep. And uh, the light is a awesome fluke rod. Yep. I'm actually building two of the uh, two of the six foot giant blanks. Oh. Right now they have an, it's like the most amazingly incredible soft tip, Ooh. and they are like the strongest rod ever. They have a 200 pound rod uh, line rating. Awesome. What, what kind of guys you going with? Uh, they uh, Winthrop Excalibur. Oh, I wish I had done that. I, I caught a couple giants on the rods I built last year in the 80s. I went to the kind of the standard issue Calstar blanks, the uh, RT80. But um, I always pucker a little bit when I see that swivel heading towards the uh, heading towards the guides, or when it's heading back out the guides when they take over run at the last minute. I haven't had any issues with the Afco Bigfoots, but those Winthrops are pretty. Sweet. Yeah, the Winthrops. It's like a, it's like a. You can drive a truck through those things, yeah. you know. Here, here's my take on it: the Afco Bigfoots have were the go-to tuna guide for years. They're gonna work. And they're they're fine. Third of the price. And the third of the price, but goddamn, those Winthrop's are nice, man. You can st- shove a pencil through them. Oh it's yeah, crazy. I mean, I mean, for a when I priced out, I think the Bigfoots were like, because generally with a six-foot rod, you need an extra guide more than the, you buy a kit basically with five guides in it, and then you gotta buy a sixth guide and then a tip. Mm-hmm. I think you're probably running like a buck fifty a set for the Bigfoots, and probably three fifty a set anyways for the for four hundred maybe for the for the winter. I, I honestly don't even remember. I just know that it's by the lot. time I bought all the components, I was like, "Holy shit! I should have just bought two for two tuna rods." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's it's yeah. Uh, they add up quick with those components. I, th- I think I tell I think I with the, all the components with the blanks is the blanks aren't cheap either. I think that's where I went wrong, is I really didn't know exactly what I was in for as far as the cost of all the components, yeah. and I made the mistake of buying the blank first, but I'm very happy I did. But just the uh, with me doing all of the labor, I'm pretty sure I have about $900 a piece invested in each one of the rods. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. So those yeah. guys had to be 400 bucks. Nothing, yeah. li- nothing like that blackout buy. We just get excited, like stuffing your cart or going well, to the bait once shop. Once you get the blank, yeah. you're It in. doesn't matter. You can't run away at that point. Well, the problem matter. is, is, Mike, you turn me on to the... Uh, uh, I forget what the site is off the top of my head now, but now they're like, oh, Black Friday special, 20% off. I'm like, oh, oh yeah. i got to load up my card. In 30% off today, one day only. i got to load up my card. Yeah, yeah. They market the like, shit out of us, man. Them now. <laughs> I'm working on, like, I've, I've built two, um, halfway done two more, and I have two more that I have to build. So six of them in this off season, and that's that's a lot for me, you know, especially having kids at home that's and they're running around you trying to make it especially happen. Especially when I was big, you know, if you're doing, like, an 80-wide rod, or a 130 rod, you're probably going to underwrap it, and then you're probably going to triple overwrap. Exactly, it's a lot wraps. of wrapping. That's four epo- four different yep. times you're applying epoxy yep. at a minimum, and then generally you're probably going to put another coat over that fourth top epoxy anyways. So you're looking at five probably coats of epoxy. And that's why it is nice doing the two of them at once. You know, while one's drying, you're wrapping the other one, and you just you keep it going. I'm trying to streamline it as best I can. I feel like I am still learning. With the wrapping, even though I have built like eight rods now. So the pro tip I found, gave you, well, my pro tip was buy another dryer. Yeah. Cheap. And oh, that yeah. Way you only Absolutely. have to make, mix epoxy once. I just hate mixing epoxy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can epoxy two rods at once instead of one if you're building enough rods to make it make sense. 
Um, the other thing I found is that my cheap rod spinners, which are like 20 bucks a piece or whatever, could not flip the, um, the rod with the guides on it. So what I had to do was electrical tape weights to the opposite side of the blank to make it spin more cleanly. Because otherwise it was like... What do you mean it wouldn't <laughs> flip? So when you have the guides on like a, say that big jet black hole giant blank, that's a lot of weight on one side oh. of the blank. And it's, it doesn't want to turn it evenly. It's going... And when it gets to the top of that curve, it just... Goes it's up. like it's like an orbital, not a circle. Exactly. So then your epoxy yeah, you, set and weird. Exactly. exactly. You need that perfect rotation to make the epoxy. I've never made right. a big rod. I've only made striper macro rods. I haven't made any tuna or shark I stuff. I mean, with, I feel like I can see that. Well, with a good rotation with the epoxy, like <laughs> Helen Keller could put the epoxy on and it's gonna gear perfectly fine. As long as it goes <laughs> nice and easy, it's gonna set well. Especially if you buy any decent epoxy out there. So I, what I did, and I, I think I, I think I. Epoxy or, or electrical tape, rather, probably I think two or three different, like two to three ounce egg sinkers on the opposite side of the bank, uh, blank rather, and that actually allowed it to spin true. Mm-hmm. And then the epoxy was pretty good. Did, and you, it, did you come up with that yourself, or did you like? Yeah, I just figured it out. Like, I was no like, kidding. this isn't That's working cool. here. I need to add some weight to the other side of the blank, and because it's so tight to the blank, you need to add more weight than the guides actually weigh because mm-hmm. they're further off the blank. Yeah. Leverage. Yep. Yeah. The one. I don't know if you ran into this problem, but uh. Supply chain is a huge issue with rod parts right now. Well, it's it's and it's always been with rod parts that shipping for the you know not to name any companies, but um, shipping rod rod part companies are just the worst at shipping. Yeah, I don't know what it is, but they take like ten to fifteen days. Well, everything is presented like they have it in stock. Right, and then you order. It's like, oh wait, we don't have this yet. <laughs> well, well, Mike and I just ordered exactly sixty nine items the other day, didn't we? We sure did. Sixty nine items, so they got to get a bunch of things together. You know, all these little tiny guides to ship out. They so. said that wouldn't be funny when you're 34, but it still is. We laughed. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, man, we're perfectly on an hour. You guys good? Yeah, absolutely. We absolutely. should do another episode of on uh, rod building and then uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that'd be great. another one. That'd be, that'd be good. Mike, as always, pleasure. Guys, if you want to go on a charter with Mike or myself, Mandolin Charters, okay, we got these two boats going. We can take up the six people running all summer long. Give us a call. Check out the website. Mandolincharters.com. Oh, Mike, before we go, your 21 is, is for Did you Have you put it up for sale oh, yet? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it is for sale. Um, I'm sure I posted it right now, but I'm going to put it back up shortly. And uh, it is still for sale. All right. A lot of interest, but you know how it is selling boats? A lot of time. So, all right, before we go, give us give, give us an ad for your boat. Tell everyone about it. Uh, 2012 Parker 21 SE with a 2012 154 Yamaha. It has 1,200 hours on it. Um, it's in great shape. There's no T-top, nice open layout with a little casting deck up front. Um, the boat's definitely been fished, but it's in very good shape and, uh, it's ready to kill a lot more big fish. We put a, we put like a 98 inch giant on it this summer, which was a riot, Mako's, other tuna. I mean, this boat can fish far, it can fish as well as any 21 footer out there. Yeah. And like I was saying earlier in the podcast, it has the juju, and that's, uh, that makes it that makes it worth to get add ten grand to the price for the yeah, juju so, the boat brings. So looking for looking for um, you know twenty eight five right now, and um, you know, hopefully we'll sell it there. Might put it up a little higher in the spring, but hopefully to hopefully to sell it this winter. Did you hear that, guys? Twenty eight five. You want it now? Could be going up. Supply and demand. There's no boats around. There's no motors around. If you want to get out there, this is probably the best boat on the market right now at a very, very, very fair price. It's on a trailer and um, it's ready to go. So nice. Cool. All right. Cool, Mike. Well, thank right. you very Thanks, much, Mike. man. Take care. Boom. Good stuff. All right. Good job, guys. See you later, guys. Have a good night.